going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 245, and I had a conversation with Kevin Clark. He is a substance abuse counselor, a trauma specialist, and the author of the book, The New Prophet. He's also, as of December, uh, 14 years sober, which is a hell of an accomplishment, if you ask me. We had a really wonderful conversation. We went all over the place. We talked about his childhood, and we talked about addiction, and we talked about his new book, and we talked about inner child stuff and uh, male uh, touching men, you know, touching their own pain, and and children trying to understand children's pain and and what they might turn to in that in that pain. And he reads an excerpt from his book. I want to bring something up uh, that I noticed cause from this episode and a few others over the past few weeks. The sound might be a little funky at times. I was It took a while for me to get the hang of the whole Zoom audio recording. Um, stuff that's coming up now, I've now figured it out. And from really next week's episode on, I think, I think I've got it dialed in. It took me a long time. I appreciate your patience with it. I have an old computer. I'm figuring out Zoom. I'm not making excuses. But if you've noticed that some of the episodes, that the sound qualities have gone back and forth and things, you're not wrong. Uh, it's just me trying to figure it all out in the course of this year of having to do everything over the computer and not in person, not the interviews in person. Man, looking forward to the vaccine days because I cannot wait to get back to in-person episodes. It's going to be really wonderful. I just watched the uh, Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. It's on HBO. It took me uh, four four goes of watching it. It's really long and it's in two parts and my time is limited in at times. So I broke it up into four parts, but wow, it's exceptional. You really do have to pay attention. It's not something you can do other things uh, because they show a lot of his journals and they just put them up on the screen. So you read them yourself. Um, so unless you have some sort of a thing on your computer, I guess, that can read it for you, uh, it's necessary to pay attention. It was excellent. I highly recommend it. I don't think you have to be a creative to enjoy it either. Um, there's a lot of depth to it that um, I think will touch a lot of people. I, I wanted to watch it because I knew that I'm, I'm interviewing Alan Zweibel in an upcoming episode, and uh, he was one of the creators of It's Gary Shandling Show. And so I wanted to watch this documentary that Judd Apatow did to get a better idea of both Alan and Gary. But wow, what a documentary. But anyway, this episode is about Kevin, and I don't want to uh, take away from that, but I just wanted to bring that up, that if you're looking for something to watch, that is definitely a worthy watch. Uh, today is a big day. It is Wednesday, the 20th, and President Joe Biden was sworn in along with Vice President Kamala Harris, and that was exciting to see. Um, yeah, I feel really good about it. Uh, really good about it. So anyway, I just, you know, throwing that in there. I don't know who watched the inauguration. I, as I said, I did. And... Um, Amanda Gorman, the young woman who is the young poet laureate of our nation. Man, she killed it. What a poem. I was so beautiful. 
uh, also loved her coat, but that's a whole other story. Um, when she said, I know it's a meme now going around everywhere, but it's so beautiful. There's always light. If only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. My God, that really, whew, that's something that really hit me. Okay, in other news, social media, Hey Human Podcast, can be found on Instagram and Facebook. You can find my personal social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. I've gotten some really beautiful letters lately, and I appreciate them. You have no idea. It really makes my day when I get to read what you all have to say. Uh, so definitely... So definitely reach out to me if, if you are so inclined, because I would love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to check out other stuff I do, go to SusanRuth.com. You'll find art and acting and music stuff there. Uh, and you can sign up for my mailing list, which for one coming out, it's going to be coming soon, because we've hit that quarter mark. Uh, I only send them out every few months. You will not be over inundated with emails from me. And I try to keep them... I try to keep the mailers fun, so <laughs> uh, sign up there if you are so inclined at SusanRuth.com. And speaking of music, if you go to iTunes, you can find my music under Susan Ruth. Super easy to find. Got some albums up there. Uh, I have uh, some songs coming out on artists upcoming, but I don't want to give it away yet because... Uh, Gotta wait for the them to give the okay. But there's some songs coming out on artists that I'm really excited about. That's uh, that's coming soon. Uh, the links page on heyhumanpodcast.com is where you're going to find information about every guest I have. They all get their section on the links page, so check that out for sure. And there's also a merch store now on heyhumanpodcast.com. Go there. It's safe and secure. There's all sorts of things. It really helps support Hey Human podcast, and uh, it's a free podcast. It's an ad-free podcast. So definitely, uh, if you are into swagadoodle-doos, then that's your that's your place to get them. T-shirts and things, you know, the stuff that merch stores have. Uh, you can also uh, support Hey Human by donating. There, There's a donate button on heyhumanpodcast.com, and if you are so inclined, I welcome it. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I just submitted Hey Human podcast to a couple new podcast app places, including Audible. So fingers crossed that it gets uh, the big okay from Audible because that would be super cool. I'm a big fan of them. Uh, love, I love books that I can hold in my hand to read. I like the smell of books. I like the feel of them. I love the ritual of reading books. But man, Audible is handy when it comes to doing things like the dishes or cleaning house or going for walks or working out. So big fan of them. It's not a plug, not a paid whatever. It's just I'm a big fan. Okay, uh, I think that's everything that I wanted to bring up. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe. Continue your diligence in that arena. And, uh, and yeah, here we go. Kevin Clark, welcome to Hey Human Podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, let's start at the beginning of you. You're, you were born in Virginia? Yes, I was born in Virginia and I've lived here for all of my life. Oh, you're still there? Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, okay. Cool. Right now. Are you in the are you in the city you grew up in or? Yeah, I've lived here in Northern Virginia, Manassas, Virginia, pretty much all of my life, except for a year when I moved away and came back. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. let's start at the beginning of you. Uh, so you were born in Virginia and you grew up there. Sounded like from the little bit of uh, information I got, you, you kind of came out of the gate in a tumultuous situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think my, I wouldn't think of my childhood. At, well, I've always had, like I said, really big and loud feelings. I've just been emotionally sensitive. And my son now, I see he has that a lot too. And I think I was, uh, I think I've always been pretty emotionally intelligent, but because I was so sensitive and the way that I was interpreting the world um, as a child, uh, I had, you know, I struggled a lot with anger. Um, my mom was like a great teacher. She would even sit me down and have me draw my feelings. There's just one really good story of, I was probably like four and she had me drawing my anger and she was in the kitchen cooking dinner. And all of a sudden I was just like, Hey mom, how do you spell bitch? <laughs> because I was just like, I don't know. I just had a lot going on inside me for as long as I could, uh, as long as I can remember. And it was it was kind of overwhelming and scary and I was very outgoing at the same time. I was really, I excelled in school at first. They thought there was something going on because I learned a lot differently. So I actually, I was in preschool for an extra year. And then like a couple of years later they came and they tested me and I tested like really high on one side and like not that high on the other side. And, uh, so I guess like my creative brain was always pretty um, high level, I guess. So I, uh, yeah, I did what was called signet or it was like a gifted and intelligent program. And, you know, I was like the school president in elementary school. So I was very outgoing. Um, so I was just, a, I was in conflict. There was like my outgoing personality. And then like the part of me that, uh, had like an overactive guilt complex and uh, unmanaged anger. And then, you know, things happened when I was a teenager. My Grammy died. She was essentially my advocate, my safe person. Um, I do trauma therapy with people now and I have my own safe place and my Grammy's part of that. But she died around the same time that like there was some, there was some abuse happening. Um, and I just kind of, uh, turned inward and I found skateboarding, which is still a really great thing for me and feeds my soul. But I also found uh, drugs at that time and I got involved in, you know, what, was it a family member that you were being abused by or outside of, family? it was a family friend. Yeah. Yeah. Did they, did they get justice? Well, they're dead now. They are. They're, yeah. The ultimate justice. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, in the 12 step community, they say like, pray for the people you're, you resent. And I remember I, I didn't, I couldn't, I wasn't there with like forgiveness yet. And I would pretty much just like pray that they get like, uh, smoted by a bolt of lightning or something like that. But, yeah. um, you know, I have forgiven those people now a hundred percent. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I reported it, obviously, when I got sober, um, I reported it and my counselor reported it too. So, 
Oh, good. It's pretty much I was, I was sexually abused when I was a kid. Yeah, I figured that's what it was. Were your parents understanding that that was going on, or did they kind of do the thing that parents do, or they look the other way? Yeah, they do the thing that parents do, and they were pretty active in the community, helping people, very active. And I think, you know, denial is such a human reaction. When you don't know how to solve a problem, you come up with all these ways to not see the problem. So while I thought like they should see, they should know, but at the same time, I didn't have a voice to tell them. Um, and of course, and a person, a predator seeks out people that already have emotional stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely a good target <laughs> for sure. So yeah did you have a curator of your anger or was that did you just come into the world angry uh i think i just came into the world angry <laughs> yeah yeah i don't really remember anything being the causal point of that and i just think i uh yeah, I just struggled with it since as long as I can remember. My mom was always trying to teach me like slowing down and breathing and all that kind of stuff. I love um, that she had you draw your feelings. That's the head of her time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was pretty advanced as far as uh, um, working with children and emotions and all that stuff. She works with, uh, she taught like uh, special needs children for a really long time. I always think it's interesting though when you hear about a, a person who is so great in and touching on a child's feelings and yet can be turning a blind eye to such a severe, horrifying thing happening in a child's life. It's a weird yeah. paradox, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I don't blame them at all either. I think for a while, I definitely resented them. I resented everybody, you know, I mean, I resented, I was, and I had this really spiritual woman that I was seeing. Um, she, she was a, she was a, one of my childhood friends mom and she does like reiki and like massage and stuff and she pointed out to me because i told her like how i was angry and she um informed me that i was enraged and i was you know and i, I took it all the way up the ladder to god and everything like that so um but yeah then i started to like understand people more and understand uh I mean, I understand psychology and the way the mind works. And um, I also know that my parents are good people and they weren't ever like, you know, they were like shocked when I told them, you know, so. Sure. When you turned to uh, drinking and drugs the first time when you were a kid, do you remember what made you cross that Rubicon and, and decide that that was going to be the way you dealt with things? Uh, I mean, I think it was somewhat unconsciously at first. Um, but it was weird because, you know, when they did like dare, like a few years earlier, I was like, Oh yeah, I'll never use drugs because that just seemed like common sense. But then, you know, as soon as I had the first opportunity, um it was like part of me was rejoicing because it was like i had this answer i'd been like waiting for to kind of quiet my mind uh turn down the volume of my feelings or change them and just be a little bit more comfortable in my own skin because i was also you know going through puberty so that's like oh hard, god hard, <laughs> hard enough as it is probably so <laughs> yeah that's that's its own brutality <laughs> How long did you participate in, in that mode of escapism? And did your parents know what was going on? 
Yeah, they knew they, but again, they didn't know the seriousness of it, which I was pretty shocked by it also. But, um, what were you doing? What drugs? Uh, well, I mean, it started with, ju- with I shouldn't say just because uh, the problems for many of them can be severe, but alcohol and marijuana and cigarettes, the normal kid stuff, I guess. I mean, and then in, in high school, I got into, uh, you know, cocaine and morphine and ecstasy and uh, hallucinogens and various other stuff. But I'd say cocaine and alcohol, and marijuana, and those were like the my staples probably mm-hmm. were your grades suffering or because you're on the brighter side you were able to maintain both um yeah that was the first thing to go was my grades and it wasn't that i don't think it was because i was i just stopped caring about it and uh um i also didn't go to school very often like the more i kind of did i don't even know how i graduated school because i really wasn't there very much i I remember one english teacher who cared about me in particular and i've had these people throughout my life that like saw me for who i was and cared about me um in spite of how i treated myself and uh like she would call my friend's mom she'd call my friend's house Cause she'd know that like we'd miss school from like drinking or whatever. And like, like, why aren't you here? Uh, you know, I had a guidance counselor that was like trying to like help me like create a schedule that would help me come to school, like starting late and leaving early. And, you know, so, but yeah, it was funny because that one teacher I mentioned, she gave out these personalized individualized student awards. And at the end of the year, I got one that said ghost student because like one second I'd be in class and the next I'd just be gone. <laughs> So yeah, school suffered a lot. Um, and I dropped out of Signet, the gifted program. I remember I was meeting with them and they were kind of sitting all of us down one by one and talking about like, what are your life plans or college or whatever? And I just said, I don't know, but I know I don't want to do this anymore. And that was it. And I never did it anymore. <laughs> school, Signet, you mean? Did Signet, you drop, yeah. Did you drop I still did out school. Of- Oh, okay, you did. Okay. Yeah, I somehow, I I graduated. Algebra 2 took me like four times, but. (laughs) Yeah, I feel you. (laughs) It's hard to do that if you don't go to school because you show up and there's these formulas and it's overwhelming. No, I get it. I get it. Uh, You maintained the addiction part of your life for quite a while. What kind of trouble did it get you into? Um, Well, it got me into psychiatric trouble and legal trouble. Um, for the most part, that was, those were like the big things. I mean, in some of the 12 steps rooms, they say like jails, institutions and death. And, um, you know, I think I was suffering like a slow soul death. Um, and kind of what happened was, so 13 to 22, I used, and the longest period I went without using during that time was eight days because I had a therapist that challenged me to go without it. And I was stark raving sober for eight days and just like even worse off. But I think she did it because she knew I was like on the brink of mental instability. Um, So when I was 19, a lot of LSD and stuff, I'm sorry. I'm going to, every time you say something that I, I'm like, Oh, I want more information on that. So I apologize. Cause that weird delay, it's going to, I feel like I'm interrupting you and I don't mean to, but, um, Firstly, I want to talk about the fact that I think many listeners will be shocked that a 13-year-old can get cocaine. Uh, And uh, secondly, 
uh, let's let's talk about that the brink and if you yourself knew you were feeling on the brink of a of a mental break um no i don't think so because i at that point i was i was so deeply unconscious in addiction it was i was so lost in it that i didn't even know how insane i was living like i wasn't sleeping like and i thought i mean i was delusional i thought sleep was for the week and i would just i was a uh, I was pretty paranoid from all the cocaine I was using too. Um, and I was selling drugs, which didn't help because that kind of puts you in this lifestyle of, uh, thinking everybody's out to get you. And as a child, you know, I found out that people, some people are out to get you. So I just didn't trust anybody. Um, but I didn't know I was about to essentially lose my mind to begin finding myself when I was 21 years old. And that's what happened. Um, I hadn't slept or eaten. I was doing all these various drugs, some hallucinogens, um, for sure. I did a lot of mushrooms and LSD and, uh, and ecstasy and cocaine, all kind of, even marijuana has hallucinogenic properties. So all that stuff in together, um, didn't end up so well for me, but I remember I got to this point where I felt like I was losing my soul. Like I just felt like it was like, I was getting to that point of like no return into like almost like stepping into like uh my shadow self to a point where i forgot who i actually was and um what happened was it seemed like all i wanted to do was i wanted to be loved and i wanted to go home and i had a home and i had people that loved me but that's what i think of as spiritual sickness is like i just i was so cut off from all that that i just felt um spiritually homesick and it ended up i went into the woods behind my parents house and uh i don't always tell this part of my story sometimes i do in the 12-step rooms but i had a conversation with a boy scout in the woods like an, an actual boy scout <laughs> um that wasn't actually there but because it wouldn't have made sense that there was a boy scout that i was talking to and uh he told me like the only thing i remember that he told me was to get to where i'm going i need to cross two rivers and be careful not to like stray too far to the side streams because you'll end up getting lost or something like that and so i thought i physically was supposed to go somewhere that day um so i went until like i had exhausted myself completely and the thing and you hear about people like getting well i ended up naked right but <laughs> That wasn't the plan like i was running and i got hot and i took off my shoes and then i jumped into this water but i only had sweatpants on and so they came off and i just ended and uh eventually i realized like i need help um and i was like seven miles from my house at this point and i went and just knocked on a random door and uh and i asked the guy for a blanket and he gave me one and i was like i know you're gonna go call the police and he did. And, uh, that was when I like, that was when I figured out that I didn't want to use drugs anymore. And I'd, uh, I had no idea what I was up against. So I thought I could just swear it off with a solemn oath. hundred percent of me meant it. I was like, I'm never going to use again. I got out of the hospital. I used that day. Um, and then I got drunk the next day. And then two weeks later, I asked my mom to take me back to the hospital then I became open to uh, psychiatry and therapy 
And for the next year and a half, I tried to control and enjoy my drug use and that day just never really comes. So I was like, Oh, just drink beer. And then next thing you know, well, I couldn't live at home anymore. Cause when I was in the hospital, I told my parents like at the full extent of like what I was up to. And they were like, pretty much, you know, you either have to change your behavior or leave. So that's when I left Manassas and moved to Radford, Virginia. And I lived with like some friends who helped take care of me for a year. Cause after you have like a full blown manic episode like that, you short circuit your brain. So it's like all the stuff that's firing off at that time leaves you in like the deepest depression ever coupled with the depression of like, I've lost now I can no longer like trust my thinking, you know? So. Although one could argue that the boy scout was your higher angels trying to get through to you. Totally. Yeah. And I think that I believe that for sure. Yeah. So or even or even a religious experience or or spiritual experience, depending on your belief systems. So, yeah, no, it was like the psychiatrist, you know, calls it a psychotic episode. Um, And I and I honor that for what it means, um, because obviously I was like out of touch with reality. But at the same time, all of a sudden I was looking at the entire world differently than I ever had before. Um, And I was seeing beyond like just the visible world uh, or the five-dimensional world that we kind of live in sure what do you think that uh, the boy scout meant by the avoiding the streams and sticking to the rivers it reminds me of that don't go chasing waterfalls <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's hilarious uh have you ever seen the movie uh the other guys i don't think so oh uh, well like michael keaton's the police chief and he quotes tlc like throughout the movie and that's I don't great know. i love it's that funny. um I think, uh, I don't know. I think one of the rivers was like sobriety it was like getting sober. I think that was the first river that I needed to cross. Um, you know, because I think it's all, and if you've read any of the book, I'm like so big on metaphors. So I'm always reading into like the deeper meaning of everything. Um, so yeah, I think one was sobriety. And then honestly, I think I crossed the second river about a year ago when I fully loved myself, um, which was like a long journey for me. And, but once you get there, there's no doubt because it's not something that like you can will yourself into just like surrender is not something you can will yourself into. Um, just like forgiveness isn't like you want cognitively, you want to be there way before you're there. Uh, at least that was my experience because I knew I, I, I needed to, and I understood like why I should be, um, but that didn't experientially get me there any faster. So I think that was the second river and yeah so now like i fully love myself and i like myself and every part of myself and i've accepted all of me and um when you were using was there an awareness that you were trying to get rid of pain from the abuse or did you just lump it all in as this is who i am this is my identity uh i mean definitely both those i was aware of that for sure because it got harder and harder to do no matter like, and I had access to all any drugs I wanted as much as I wanted. And, you know, eventually the people would leave that were distracting me. And, uh, you know, the memories, the thoughts and the feelings were still there. You know, the, yeah, there wasn't enough, there's not enough drugs in the world to like numb that out. So that was my experience. But I did, uh, I do remember like, Cause at one point it was like driving me, 
so mad. Like, I mean, I was so going so insane about it that I was like thinking I should just, you know, cause I was a drug dealer. So I had a gun. I was thinking I should just take my gun and go kill this guy, you know, but I didn't do that. But that's what I mean. Like, that's when I was getting to that point of like, I'm going to like cross a line that like I can never come back from, mm-hmm. you know, I was aware of that. I mean, I was raised like with a lot of spiritual wisdom to begin with. So I knew I had a good moral compass. Yeah. When I was selling drugs, I felt really guilty and ashamed. And like, it was like this, like kept me in that shame cycle. Cause like I sold drugs to use drugs, but I felt guilty about selling the drugs. So I used more drugs and it was, I feel like some people listening would probably feel that you were within your right to take out a person that hurt you that way, you know? But yeah. I get the moral compass thing and the eye for an eye just leaves everybody blind, of course. Yeah. I mean, obviously that was just a really sick person, you know, and I'm sure there was some, there's some good components to that person as well, but. Um, yes, we are, we are a mosaic. There's, there's a lot of gray in there. I mean, doing hurting other people, that's black and white, but yeah. the reasons behind it is where it gets gray. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand it and not condone it at all. Yeah. It's tricky, right? Forgiveness is tricky to forgive the person for behaving the way they do, but to not forgive the act because the act is unforgivable. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And to be able to separate those two things. Yeah. And not just, I don't just, I don't want to carry that stuff anymore. And I don't, you know, yeah. Like if I, I have like no hard feelings at all. So, I mean, obviously I want to be alive for my kids and everything, but like I've made peace um, and I'm just not in a place where like I have any regrets, resentments or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So. You had said in your email that they considered you untherapyable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, did you, what did you mean by all of that? Oh, yeah. So after I got out of the hospital the one time, I, and I guess because back then people were just starting to really like work with like dual diagnosis or co-occurring. So a lot of psychiatrists wouldn't touch me because I was still using, um, you know, and I wasn't stopping using. So they're like, I'm not, I don't know they said I was too acute is what, cause my mom was like trying everywhere to find a psychiatrist that would work with me. And I found a woman in DC and I saw her for like 10 years and, you know, so. Over the internet, you mean? Sorry. No, I went in person. I'm, I'm not that far from DC. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. You're in Virginia. Of course it's hop, yeah. skip and a jump. I always forget yeah. how little both of those places are. <laughs> yeah. Where are you at? I'm in Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. I, I've been skating out there a couple of times. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's sunny all the time, which is <laughs> good for the mental health in my, in my world. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, what happens next? Well, then what happened as they say in the story? Um, then what happened? Like I said, I went to Radford. I was trying to control it and it all started all over again because I blacked out like drinking Southern comfort out of a bowl. And, uh, I ended up locked in a room by myself with a bag of cocaine somehow. And then I was just like, well, all bets are off and I just don't care about anything because I've already crossed my boundary. Yeah, because you always cross boundaries in addiction. That's all you do. It's like you step over one line and you step over another and then you're just like, well, screw it. So that's what happened. And that's, I think when I came back for break is when I saw my therapist again 
and she was the one that was when she told me to go like eight days without it because i think she saw me like about to like have like a total breakdown all over again so i went eight days and then i moved in with a guy and we lived in old town downtown manassas for a while and then the police came and then i went to jail for a while for why um well for drugs for drugs i mean i had like they charged me with four felonies um possession of a firearm while in possession of schedule one and two narcotics possession of marijuana with intent to dispense and then possession of like it was like oxycontin and cocaine so and mm-hmm. then uh so that's why did you get sober in jail because i, I did yeah that that can be difficult because there's just as much drugs in jail as out <laughs> there is yeah people some people don't like realize that um and so yeah if there's i mean there's people that make hooch there's people like smoking crack cocaine with batteries like like to use it to light it like people are very crafty and find ways to do things um but no yeah i, I stayed sober Tomorrow's actually my 14 year anniversary on the 14th. Congratulations. So, yeah, it's exciting. Very exciting. Um, yeah, and that's when I, I, and I count my time in jail because that's when I uh, really surrendered. Uh, I was in there for 11 months, but I went to a six month drug treatment program. And I always think of it, I met three men at that time. And if I hadn't met all three of them, my life wouldn't have been saved. Um, and one Great. was Jim, he was a World War II vet. And he like taught me a lot. He just had like infinite wisdom. And he was like my grandfather that like, I know like the best, like the ideal grandfather that someone like me could ever have. And uh, the other one was Keith and he died. So both of these guys died sober. They're both dead now. Um, Keith was another inmate and he had been clean before through NA and uh, was actually working with a sponsor out there. And he in a blackout had blown off half of his face with a shotgun. Whoa. Yeah. And been in a coma for a while. So he's like the guy that you want to go to and like, just full of love this guy. Um, but also a lot of pain. So he's like the perfect guy that you want to share. What's the fifth step is. And that's what I shared my first fifth step with, where you tell him like everything about your life, you know, you just kind of shine a light into all your secrets and all your fears and everything. And by doing that with him, he really taught me like that I wasn't alone anymore. Um, And uh, that was like the greatest gift to me I could have received. Mm. Jim, you know, he would always just tell me like he was great because he would like taught me I needed more confidence. He taught me I couldn't open a door with a closed fist. He taught me, you know, if you saw like a turtle on a fence post, it didn't get, get there without any help. He just had all kinds of like, you know, he could just see things that, um, I don't know. He was just an amazing, amazing person. Did they die in prison? No, Jim was a, he was a volunteer. He oh. brought AA meetings in. Okay. And uh, Keith got out, rebuilt a beautiful life, married a woman, started a business all over again. He just, he died clean. Probably, he probably had some health issues because of everything that was kind of going on there. Um, but yeah, he died after died clean, died out of jail. Um, and uh yeah jim died with like over 40 years sober and wow that's great is it still a struggle or do you find it's easier every day that one day at a time at 
Yeah, I think it is uh, easy, you know, like pretty easy, like the not drinking part. And there's this interview that I saw a while back and it's like Robert Downey Jr. with Oprah early into his sobriety. And she asked that same question essentially. And he was, she was like, is it really difficult? And he said, no, it's pretty, it's easy. Like the hard part is making the decision. And it's like, once you make that decision to like, just suspend everything you think, you know, and do what these people tell me to do and just see, you know, what happens. Um, it was like, I went to work expecting to get paid for two weeks and they paid me for a year. And I'm like, okay, this work is worth it. So I'm going to keep working on myself. And it opened a door to a lot of other, you know, emotional body work and a lot of other like, you know, spiritual research, I guess you could say. Yeah. When you decided to uh, rewrite, not rewrite, but take on the prophet, Khalil Gibran's the prophet, beloved, read by millions, everyone certainly has, I would think, at least seen one or two of, of his poems and what made you decide that to to tackle that well and also talk about what it is exactly you're you've done with it yeah yeah i definitely didn't want to rewrite it because it was like gibran's masterpiece and uh i don't think i could it's not meant to be recreated um but for some reason i got the idea in my head you know a couple years back like well first of all I read a lot of like spiritual literature and I think I was buying a Dr. Dyer book from this used bookstore around here, this huge used bookstore. Um, and then I turn around and I saw the prophet with like gold embossed writing mm-hmm. on the bookshelf and it was like two bucks. And I was like, I don't even know what this is. So I think I probably read it in like, probably like 2008 at first, the first time I ever read it. And I read it and it was impactful enough that I wanted to study it later with a group of guys who I call my inner circle. We meet every Tuesday and we have for years. Um, right now we do it via zoom, but essentially it's like in a, a group of guys that get pretty damn emotionally intimate with each other. We check in about everything with our lives. We meditate and we study, you know, we studied the four agreements, the prophet, uh, the Tao, all that kind of stuff. So we started the prophet and around that time is when I decided, cause I knew for a while I was going to write books. Um, and I didn't know what my first book would be cause I didn't want to, um, and then for some, and I, I, I used to write poetry. So somehow it just came to me like, okay, the first book is definitely going to be the new prophet. I don't know what it's going to look like. Um, but then I work at a, I work at a rehab and we do spiritual principles every day. So I'm like teaching and talking on this stuff and having like my own kind of mini revelations along the way. So I think I started writing the book in my head uh, before I actually sat down to do it for sure. But I thought well, I had this creative outpouring last spring where I like, I knew the people's names in the book um, and I started getting some of the topics down And then I did what was called the artist way, which is a 12 week. Yeah. You know what it is from Julia Cameron. You get like a page in and like clearly this woman's in Alcoholics Anonymous or uh, in recovery at least. And it's a process to, uh, it's a spiritual path to creativity to unblock your creative. So I mean, pretty much it reconnects you with your child self, which is your most creative self. 
And I, through that, since you write three pages every day, I was like, all right, I'm just going to write this book while I do this. So I just tried to follow the pen, never let it stop moving. And sometimes I was just writing, I have no idea what to write. And then I would get to a topic and I would just follow it and write on it. And the first seven weeks of that is when I wrote this book. And I think the timing, I don't know. I really trust the timing of God, the universe, whatever you want to call it. I think it was perfect timing because just like how you were inspired to start this podcast because the world was hurting in that way. Um, I feel like now more than ever, people need to be focused on, you know, an emotional age, an age of emotional awareness and uh, the death of ego because there's been so much like egoic structures that, um, you know, all structures are destined to crumble and we kind of like, it's all come to a ugly head and, you know, pain is the touchstone of spiritual growth. So I think a lot of people are able are now like starting to look inward and there's still a lot of resistance and a lot of fighting it, but I think it, we're in a position now, whereas in 1928, when that book was first published, the prophet, um, people weren't as emotionally aware. Now we have more people who are going to therapy and learning all this stuff. Um, so whereas that book was about, you know, more institutions of life, like marriage and prison and uh, buying and selling and food and drink and just the things of living. Uh, mine's more about institutions of self and the inside job and the emotional experience, um, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And does it follow characters as it goes along or is it more, you know, I had said it's poetry or yours more essay. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of, uh, it's kind of, it's similar like that. The structure is very similar, but instead of this, so in the prophet, the guys leaving the city of Orphalese and different people from the city come up and they're like, tell me about this. Cause they're trying to get this guy's wisdom. Mine is about a son and his father. His father was this great counselor and he's on his deathbed. Um, and his son sits with him to get all the wisdom to share back with the, you know, to carry his father's like, uh, love and capacity to create safe place for people, uh, to everyone else. So it's a little bit, is it you and Jim? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's more me and my son. I think if it's anybody, okay. Cause they even eat toast and jam, which used to be like what me and my son eat, you know? And, uh, yeah. I see it as like my most like, uh, spiritually wise self. And then, you know, my son who wants to help people one day. Could you read something from your book for, yeah. for people to hear? Totally. Yeah. I'll read the inner child part since we were talking about childhood so much and everything like that. Inner child. Everybody has one though. Sometimes the adult has placed a child in timeout. That isn't parenting. Not when the child has been left there for many years. This is neglect. Parenting involves nurturing, caregiving. Your inner child just wants to play with you. A child always remembers fondly playing with mom and dad. So don't walk through life forgetting this aspect of self. Be silly and remember what it's like to be a child. Stay silly to never forget. This is the way of the clever adult. Some children get locked away and forgotten. The child grows sad. Then the child becomes scared. Before too long, you have an angry child screaming at the top of his little lungs. Eventually, the child becomes sick. 
this is true sadness. And we see the evidence of this in the world we live in. When you become reacquainted with your inner child, do not feel guilty for he has already forgiven you. He remembers why you locked him up in the first place to protect him, to keep the both of you alive. Instead, feel overjoyed for the day has come when you can finally love yourself again. Welcome, welcome him home with a hug and get to playing. You are strong enough to protect him, but you won't need to anymore. That purpose has been served. Your best days are ahead of you yet. So live not in regret, but cherish every moment and join the gift that is the aliveness of the present. That's the part on inner child. I love that. Beautiful. Yeah. Did you feel like much of the book just flowed through you without yes. much thought? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't do much thinking. I just wrote. And some of it was stuff that like I'd... Some was, it's interesting because it all kind of came from like either some of it was merged wisdom. Um, some of it was just straight off the, just through the present, trying to write from a space of presence. Uh, I think I was writing from a space of presence throughout all of it, but there was like also a backdrop of like, cause if you know anything about like somatic experiencing, like the stuff I write about, like trauma, like there's a backdrop of like me working with all these different people who have trauma and like witnessing the way that like, they kind of, uh, you know, detach from their bodies and then like get like, um, finding their way like back into feeling and, uh, you know, internal family systems, like there's like stuff in there. Like, so there's like this whole backdrop of knowledge and information and experience but also trying to write through that space of presence which kind of gave it i think that poetic language um and the metaphor and i and i think you know why is uh spiritual teaching always you know so powerful in metaphor or spiritual or deep wisdom and it's because it's like you're painting a picture with words and a picture when you look at it you can start to see like more than just like you know there's more to see there um it's like there's levels and depth to it and it's kind of like that Dr. Dyer quote, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So if you're able to give someone a different way to look at anger or fear through painting a picture with words, then all of a sudden they have a deeper understanding of themselves. And through like that deeper understanding, they're able to participate in life different, you know, show up differently and they feel seen and not alone. That's so. everything. So, yeah, that's everything. Wow. Beautiful. I'm excited to read it. So you came into the world full up of anger. How do you think you figured out how to met it? Because I do think, at least right now, it seems people are so angry yeah. and and lashing out. And I do think it's because they don't know how to touch the pain of themselves. I talk about that on the show all the time. Uh, how how did you come to figure out how to do that? It might, you know, maybe somebody will will get something from that, from your experience. Yeah. I mean, I think it, well, first I was really scared of my anger and I think I tried to really logic my way around it a lot. Um, and just, you know, I swung from like emotional reasoning to logical reasoning. And as I've learned more to actually be with the feelings that arise and, um, you know, pay attention to what's going on inside me, um, and develop that mindfulness and give myself permission and find safe people. Um, just allow myself to have an emotional experience because I think a lot of it's just negatively charged, unintegrated emotion from a long time ago. And that's what anger uh, that a lot of us are carrying. Um, and I still have anger, but a lot of my anger 
Um, cause like emotional work is, it's almost like we do it in layers, you know, it's like you, and for me, there's always sadness at the bottom of like each layer. Um, because for some reason that's what I was most scared of feeling, I think as a child. And because, um, you know, I created some, somewhere I got like the defective conditioning that like sadness is weakness and I cannot be weak. So, well, you're a man in the world and I think men yeah. are generally are generally taught that from a very early age unfortunately yeah and we're shown we're, we're shown it too because my dad would be like you know men real men cry but then he would show someone like not like not allowing himself to cry so although he knew like you know he would like hopefully i think each generation we're probably getting a little bit closer to uh just true authentic experiencing of our human condition yeah i uh, hope so amen to that <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and you're also a counselor yeah yeah i do I, I do addiction counseling i'm a certified trauma professional so and i think that's really where my gifts lie it's like um helping people work through like the ugliest stuff that they got mm. so and since you've spent a lot of time in your shadow side i imagine that makes you very good at it I think that being able to to be in that energy and be in that space um, from your own perspective, uh, I imagine that makes you very good at that job. Yeah, yeah. I know all the dark places the mind can go and I understand like the ugliness of humanity and I've reprocessed all my own stuff already. So I don't have to worry about like being triggered in a session, although sometimes it is like taxing. Um, it can like wear you out, but self-care is paramount when you're in the helping professions and I'm pretty on top of that too. And you have a couple kids? Yeah, I have three, my 18 year old stepdaughter. She's like a phenomenal musician. And then I have two twin. I have two twins. I have one set of twins, Abraham and Adelaide. And mm, I love those names. Yeah. And there'll be six in March 26th. So, wow. yeah. What a story. What's, what's coming up for you? I don't know. It's been a big year because I started my own business this year. I wrote the book. Uh, I bought my first house. So my wife beat cancer. Like she had some very oh. rare cancer that she had, to, that she dealt with, um, which means we, we all deal with it. Like cancer is like addiction and that it's a family disease because it like throws everything out of balance so much that like it affects everybody that's around she's um, in recovery now yeah yeah she's she finished her chemo like middle of last summer or like toward the end of last summer i guess um she did, had an emergency surgery once they found the tumor on her spine oh my god and yeah and then they came up with a treatment plan after they finally figured out like what they're dealing with um because primarily a pediatric cancer ewing sarcoma um and it can be pretty serious. And obviously like I always like read and research everything, which is not always the best thing, but <laughs> I can interpret that information, I think pretty well. So um, yeah, it was, it was scary and it, it was definitely like something I was carrying. So I'm glad that that's over. And then obviously the pandemic happened. There's a lot happening this year, last year. Um, this, yeah. It's been a hell of a ride, but what's next. I don't know. Um, I've been, brainstorming with some people about starting a foundation 
um i want to like uh help people like pay for treatment um because there's not a lot of resources out there for that and my understanding is uh, partially because it's hard to get government grants because there's government treatment but the wait lists are so long and a lot of people don't want to go into government treatment programs because they've had bad experiences or the quality of care might not be as good so i don't know that's still a new idea mm -hmm. um and then there's another book that i'm going to be writing too oh yeah what's that one about um it's kind of about like coming into alignment with your truth the conscious heart and literally i have like all 11 chapters mapped out but there's like mirror work and you know healing from trauma and I don't know, I have all these like clever names and stuff, but That's those great. aren't those aren't them, but yeah. When I write it. Fantastic. I'm gonna have a lot of like uh I'm gonna use like Carl Jung stuff and Rumi. Okay. Because like Carl Jung for consciousness and Rumi for heart and uh Love Rumi. It'll be a little bit more self helpy than this last one and less poetic. Um, with like actual assignments and ways that you can put stuff into practice and stuff like that. Yeah, I have a uh, right here, I have a Carl Jung painting uh, in my podcast room. That yeah, he's really awesome. Yeah. I like that elephant statue behind you, too. Uh, thank you. I'm a big fan of elephants. Yeah, I got one above my bed, this big elephant painting. Yeah, <laughs> is, is is my jam. Uh, how can people find you? Um, well, they can find me. I have an author account on Facebook and Instagram, Kevin McNevin Clark. My middle name rhymes with my first name. So that's M-A-C-N-E-V-I-N. -E and I also have ExcelsiorAddictionServices.com. Excelsior is E-X-C-E-L-S-I-O-R. Um, that's my counseling services and from there there's like the author page too so that might be the easiest one to remember excelsior oh. addiction services and i put links on the links page yeah. on makes it easy for everybody uh you, i'm sorry go ahead oh just to say but you can find the new profit on instagram i mean on uh amazon or barnes and noble or any of those places okay. are you on social media besides yeah. the author page uh yeah yeah i'm on there yeah yeah. You mean like, just like personally? I mean, yeah, sometimes people <laughs> like to go see people's Instagram pages and things, but that may not be your, <laughs> your channel. No. <laughs> no, well, my personal page, I always keep private because of all the clients I work with and everything that like that. Sense. But my author pages and like my business pages, those are up for have, anybody. Do you have an Instagram for the new profit? Uh, just the author page. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. yeah the, so... But yeah, if you type in the new profit, I'm sure it'll pop up. Okay, cool. Kevin, thank you. I really appreciate your time and, and hearing your story. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I am curious if you were to go back and and say something to your 13-year-old self and then your 22-year-old self. Yeah. What do you think you'd say in those two occasions? Let's see. Well, uh, I think my 13-year-old self... Um, I would probably, I'd probably just tell him I loved him and give him a hug. Cause I think that's really what, uh, teenagers usually need. Cause I know when, I think this time when my daughter came home and this is like a great 
example of responsiveness versus reactivity and she like yelled at her mom or something and said something to me and my condition my defective conditioning was like oh i'm being dis we're being disrespected right now so i start to like storm up the stairs after her and i get almost to her door and then all of a sudden i realize that i'm acting on defective conditioning and like this is like actually not going to help anything to be like hey you need to treat us this way or whatever the hell like you know stuff that my dad gave me he's a great guy but he you know so it's no nothing against him but it did it. it doesn't work so anyway instead when i got to her door i gave her a hug and she just cried on my shoulder because it had nothing to do with us you know and she just had some stuff going on so i would just give my 13 year old self a hug and tell him i love him and let him cry mm. and, and uh year old self? my 22 year old self i'd be like this is it this is where it all changes so <laughs> um you're a badass because i mean 22 that was like when i uh i just did started doing anything i could to make my life better and when i got to jail i did like four levels of anger management i did a faith-based program i did the drug program i did a college class i mean i did like anything i could to like make my because i saw like people that were kind of like uh had twisted mentalities that like this is okay to come back to jail then you go out there and you make money and you come back here and i was like this is those guys are insane like that's not going to be my life um so yeah 22 i guess i'd just say you you have no idea that you're about to get the life that you never knew you always wanted and deserve yeah and deserve that, actually that's probably what i would tell my 22 year old self because when my counselor told me when I graduated treatment, he said, uh, like, you deserve this or you're worthy. I remember there was like that, uh, that conflict in me because I felt so emotional when he told me that because I knew I wanted to like believe that, but I didn't believe that yet. So yeah, yeah maybe that's what all I'd tell him was like, you deserve the life that you're about to have. Yeah. Worthiness is a big struggle for humans. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Very nice to meet you, Susan. It's nice to meet you, too. Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, for your openness and honesty about uh, your life, I think that that gives people courage to face their own, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, I'll write a book about my life, but I feel like not that many people want to read it yet. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin true. Clark, have a wonderful day and thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye.